But it's really, it's, it's really a great privilege to be able to gather as we do now to celebrate the gospel, to praise our God who gave us such great news. And so the message this morning I'm calling Gospel Logic, and you'll see why in a moment. Let me begin by saying what I think you'd all realise. The sad truth is that Australian society is increasingly post-Christian. It's not Christian anymore, it's post-Christian. For example, for most people, Calvary is no longer seen as very relevant to anything. It merely provides a holiday each year at what people call Easter. At the very best, there are certain bare facts of Calvary which are recalled, such as the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. But that's about where it ends. But those bare facts need to be correctly interpreted. That's the point of this passage in 1 Corinthians. The bare facts, the crucifixion of Jesus and all the facts that go with it, they need to be correctly interpreted. As you know, the gospel message is not simply a recital of bare facts. It's not fact after fact after fact. The gospel is the explanation of the logical connection between all the facts. And so that is the idea behind the text before us today. So there you'll see it on the screen now. The text we're focusing on this morning, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. The logic of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Some of you will realise that English translations vary in how they translate that. Uh, some translations have the word of the cross. Other translations have the preaching of the cross. The NIV, for example, has the message of the cross. Uh, I think they're quite acceptable translations, but I'm going to suggest to you now that the more precise term is the word logic. In fact, in Greek, the word here is logos, the logos of the cross. And it embraces all those other translations. So what are we focusing on? What is logic? It is the proper explanation of how facts fit together. It's what logic deals with, how you fit facts together sensibly. And by the way, the facts of the cross are very, very difficult for us. They're difficult facts. In fact, as I'll remind you in a moment, they are quite shocking facts. They actually cry out for, they demand a logic to fit them together. So we need to consider two things this morning. That's what we're going to do with you this morning. We're going to consider firstly the bare facts, and then we're going to consider their logical connection, that is, the interpreted facts. Let's begin with the bare facts. That scene at Calvary, that scene at Golgotha involved many, many facts. But I'm going to pick just three of them this morning. They stand out. Fact number one, consider the man on that cross, the person on that cross. Who is he? Well, the staggering thing is it's God's son on that cross. He is, in the same letter, the Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, he is described as all the fullness of God dwelling bodily, in bodily form. In other words, Calvary is where they crucified the fullness of God appearing as a human. Calvary was the day where this world so hated God that they crucified God in the flesh. Just pause for a minute. What a staggering fact. They, they crucified incarnate deity. 
How can that be gospel good news? How can that be good news? Would you not agree, folks, that gospel fact demands some gospel logic to put it in its right place? How? Why? Okay, keep that one bare fact in mind. Fact number two, consider the penalty on that cross. Jesus not only suffered suffered on the cross, he suffered a penalty. How do we know that the death of Christ was penal, that it was a penalty? How do we know that? Well, just ask, what is death? The Bible answers very, very clearly. Death is the penalty for sin. Remember how Romans 6 puts it in Romans 6.23? And you could almost say it off by heart, I reckon. The wages, the penalty, the price you pay for sin is death. Death is the payment that God quite rightly requires from sinners. The Bible also says it this way, the soul that sins shall die. But here on the cross is the only man who never sinned. So it raises an immediate question, so why did he die? He never earned the wages of sin, so why is he being paid out on that pole on top of Mount Calvary? The Bible says he was tempted in every way just as we are, but there's no full stop there, is there? He was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. So why was he crucified? Why was he suffering the penalty for sin? He never did any sin. Now I want you to feel with me, folks. We are facing a moral dilemma here. This is a very agitating thought, and it's meant to be. It should agitate every thoughtful human. And I think it's fair to say that fact demands a logical explanation. There needs to be a logic of the cross to make sense of that fact. That not only was incarnate deity put to death, but he was put to death as a payment for sin, which he did not do. Let's go to the third fact. What was the source of that penalty? From what source did Christ's terrible penalty come? And I find this absolutely staggering. The staggering answer is what makes the dilemma complete. It was God the Father who inflicted Christ's bitter agonies upon him. You remember the passage Isaiah 53 sums it up as well as anyone. He, that is Jesus, he was stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. It was the Lord's will to crush him. It wasn't just the Romans. It was the Lord's will to crush him, putting him to grief. And that was the most horrible aspect of Calvary, wasn't it? That was the most horrible aspect, the most difficult thing for Jesus himself to work with. It brought out that cry of dereliction from him, didn't it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? Why have you abandoned me? I think Jesus is telling us here that his his personal reaction is this. Our Lord is bearing his soul. He's really saying, look, I can cope with all of earth's men being against me. I can cope with that, unpleasant as it is. I can cope with all of hell's demons being against me. But why is heaven's God against me? Why has my own father turned his face away from me? Can you feel this is the this is the anguish that Jesus was giving uh, evidence of? There's a couple of things to tease that out even further. Let me just press that a bit further so you get the point. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized? God the Father was involved again, wasn't he? God the Father said, "This 
is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Remember those words in Matthew chapter 3? A bit later in his ministry, when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James and John, you recall? When he was transfigured, again God the Father spoke. Spoke from heaven and he said, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. How's this got to affect, how does this affect Calvary? Well, now here we are at Calvary, and here's the reality. God is still declaring, this is still my beloved son, with whom I am still well pleased, but now I am crushing him. Now I am abandoning him. Now I am penalizing him, and I'm putting him to grief. Now I am pouring out my wrath upon him. This is my beloved son, says God. I am treating him as anathema. I am cursing him. Do you remember then, boy, I said it a few minutes ago. I said to you, these are the facts of the cross. They are very disturbing facts. They can't stand by themselves. There's got to be somewhere a logic to explain all this. So it is undeniable that the facts of Calvary are very disturbing. Those facts by themselves seem to impugn the holiness of God. How could these awful facts be what we call good news, gospel? How is Calvary a demonstration of love when all those facts exist? Remember we sing the, we sing the great hymn, love divine or love's excelling. Well, how can that be love, love divine where God the Father is crushing his innocent son? How can that be love? I want you to ponder that question, folks, for a moment. If you saw a good father bruising his innocent son. If you saw a good father bruising his innocent son, cursing him, crushing him, and rejecting him for deeds they both agree he is not guilty of, suppose you saw that happen. Would you conclude from those facts, oh, here's a supreme exhibition of love. No, you would conclude from the bare facts alone, here is proof of utter malignancy. This is not love. It's not merely the absence of love. It is the very antithesis of love, isn't it? So logic demands that we ask God this question. Why treat your son like that, Lord? Indeed, I think the question is stronger than that. What right did God the Father have to treat his innocent son like that? What right? Decency demands an answer. Conscience demands an answer. The very nature of God demands an answer. How can God remain God, holy and innocent, if there is no satisfactory resolution to these dreadful facts? Is there such a thing as a resolution? Is there a gospel logic? Well, now we get into real good news. Yes, there is. And that's what I'll take up with you now. Let's consider now not the bare facts, but the interpreted facts. And the Bible says... The one little word solves the problem. The little word for, F-O-R. Notice the text, Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke is really due. It means that Jesus stood in as the innocent substitute for his guilty people. The stroke was due to us. We should be the ones hanging on that cross at Golgotha. But he took our place. He became our substitute. 
And let me just push this a bit further. There are two really helpful and two important senses in which Christ acted for us. F-O-R. They're two different prepositions in the Bible, but they are very, very significant that we get a handle on this. The first of those prepositions for is when the Greek word hyper is used. It means for, on behalf of, on behalf of. You find it in Romans 5. At just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for, hyper, for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died again, here's the word again in the same sentence, for us. In the simple English, it means that Christ played the same role as any solicitor does in a court of law. A solicitor in a court of law, he does everything he does for his client. He acts in the place of his client. He acts on our behalf. He pleads in our interests for us. So that's the first little preposition, for. But there's another one which is very rich. In the Greek, it's the word anti. Christ was there in our place. This time, for means in our place. Instead of us, he was there. Notice you see that in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom. He's that big word, for many, anti. This means Jesus does far more than any solicitor ever does. You know what normally happens in a court of law? The legal representative, that is the solicitor, he pleads before the judge on behalf of his client. But when the guilty verdict is handed down by the judge and the penalty is then immediately imposed, it never falls upon the solicitor. I mean, who'd be a lawyer? It never falls upon the solicitor. It always falls correctly upon the guilty criminal that he was representing. And then the solicitor, the advocate, he withdraws. He goes away to his private freedom and the culprit pays for his own offences. That is always what happens, but there's one exception, not in the gospel. In the gospel, our advocate, our solicitor, our substitute stood in for us right to the end and even bore the punishment that we should get. Our penalty was suffered by him. Our crime became his crime. Instead of us being abandoned by God, Jesus was abandoned in our place. And he, he paid out our bankruptcy, bankruptcy. There was a complete and thorough exchange of places at Calvary. And I find this beautifully and clearly stated in this next verse you'll see, Second Corinthians 5. God made him, talking about Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that amazing? Christ took the place of the guilty and suffered what they deserved. He became sin for us. And other way around, and now they stand in his place to receive everything which he deserves, namely eternal life. That's the logic of Calvary. That's the logic of the cross. That's what makes it so powerful. And so, friends, all the logic of the cross hangs on this little word, for. You will all know that one of your best memory verses ever, I think, when you were kids growing up. I am the good shepherd. The words of Jesus recorded in John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. Here's that key word again. For his sheep. This is the gospel. 
if you want fancy theological terms, we've just been talking about that wonderful truth called substitutionary atonement. Christ substituted for all of us guilty people and took the penalty we deserve. So now we can see it was not mysterious, it was not malignant for God the Father to so severely treat his son at Calvary. On the contrary, Jesus was not there as a private person. Can I just say that again? Jesus wasn't there just as Jesus of Nazareth. He was there as the substitute for all his guilty people down through all of history. God the Father was not ultimately dealing with Christ. He wasn't punishing Christ ultimately. He was punishing you and me and all the sinners who will ever be saved. Do you know at Calvary we were all there in Christ our substitute. All our evil godless rebellion was imputed to him, was put upon him. All our guilt, all our curse, all our condemnation was heaped on Jesus. He became the substitute to bear it. So once Christ officially became sin for us, once he was our substitute right at the end, at the, at the hour of judgment, now can you see, it was absolutely necessary for God the Father to punish him. Absolutely necessary. The Father had to pour out his wrath and his indignation. He cannot be indifferent to our sins. They had to be judged. Let me put that the other way around. It would have been intolerably unrighteous if the father had not crushed his son once he took our guilty place at the hour of judgment, which is exactly what he did on that cross. There's some very thrilling applications out of all this, folks. What a thrill this is for everybody who loves Jesus. And I want to encourage you here. When we look at the horrors of the cross and the terrible penalty paid for sin, can I encourage you, don't just say merely, oh yeah, there but for the grace of God go I. It's much stronger than that. The truth is, there by the grace of God am I. There I am by the grace of God on that cross, suffering that shocking penalty. There I am in my substitute who took my place. There on that cross is nailed all my sin and all my guilt. This is the way I like to put it. There on that cross, hanging on that cross, is all the hell I deserve. There God poured out the holy wrath and retribution I deserve. And there it all ends because as soon as Jesus had finished that transaction, you remember his triumphant cry, it is finished. It's finished. And how does Paul put that into words in Romans 8? It is finished. Therefore, Paul says, therefore there is now, and you know this verse, don't you? Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's all finished. It was all borne by my substitute, Jesus Christ. Well, let me draw to a conclusion. Let me do, I'll draw to a conclusion by going back to where we started with that text. You'll notice in that text we started with, there are only two possible responses indicated by the Apostle. The words again, For the logic of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so the appropriate question for every one of us here is, which one applies to you? Which one applies to me? Is it foolishness or is it the power of God? 
So my question is, do you believe the substitutionary atonement? That is, do you believe the logic of the cross we've just been summarising? Is Calvary the power of God to you because you see Christ Jesus hanging in your guilty place? Do you see there the greatest demonstration of divine love that God was prepared to abandon his only innocent begotten son rather than abandon you? If that's what grips your mind, if that's what motivates your life, is that what you trust in? Then, according to the text, you are being saved. That's what it is to those who are being saved. It's the power of God. But there's an alternative reaction, isn't there, among human beings? Or is the gospel message something that has never really had an impact on you? Perhaps you've accepted the bare fact of the cross, but you've never been moved by any logical connection of these facts. And so the message of the cross is no big deal for you. And let me just pause. I must say to the praise of God and to my own shame, for 20 years that's where I was at. I knew all about Calvary. I was brought up having to go to Sunday school, mainly because I got a hiding at home if I didn't go, so I went. I heard all about it. I still found the other day on my um, one of my bookshelves a little tiny red King James Bible, about, say, three inches high, very thick, and so, such small writing, you've got to get a magnifying glass to read the writing. But I must have done all right at the memory class because they give you a memory verse each week, and if you knew it the week after, you'd get a chocolate. And because I was a fan of chocolate, I got stamps all the time I threw it. My point is, but I had no idea what Calvary was about. I could recite memory verses like anybody else. Perhaps people have accepted the bare facts of the cross and never been moved by the logical connection of those facts. And so the message of the cross to so many Australians is no big deal. Isn't that tragic? That is post-Christian Australia. And according to this Bible text, it is a very dangerous state to be in because it's called by the Apostle, quote, those who are perishing. But good news, this is still a day of grace. God is still willing to open blind eyes. The Holy Spirit still quickens people from spiritual death and newness of life. And so my word to anybody, either sitting here today or people you know of, get the message across them. Take Jesus at his word. What does he say? Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. Ask and you shall receive. You have not because you ask not. Is it the gospel word to people? My dear friends, I have shared with you today one of the most profound truths in all of human history, the Christian doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It is the gospel. It's the logic of the gospel. And my prayer is this. May God bless each one of you with eyes to see this gospel logic and with hearts to be thrilled by it every day of your lives and with opportunities you can use to get that across to others that they might also come into that kingdom of God and to him be all the praise and the glory. Amen.